so um, we lost an hour uh, <laughs> and uh, grateful for your giving up an extra hour of sleep this morning uh, if we could <laughs> if we could hold an hour in our hand you could each put it in the Donna box and <laughs> as your contribution uh, for today it's very much appreciated <clears throat> um, last week I talked about leaving home and how this leaving home was a sort of classic spiritual act um, Each of you left home today, um, and it occurred to me that um, whenever we get up off of our cushions, this could be seen as an act of leaving home. Um, and when we are walking in meditation, that could be seen as uh, our journey uh, to back to home, back to our cushions. So today I want to focus a bit, not just on the act of leaving home, which is an act of courage and an act of commitment and an act of um, faith. Because when we leave home, we are not just leaving a physical environment, but we're leaving all of that conditioning, all of those preconceptions, all of those opinions, all of those preferences, all of, all of what we have built up over the years as who we are and what we believe. And we are in effect saying, I'm prepared to enter the unknown. I'm prepared to see what's, what lies beyond what I have come to regard as a safe, secure, um, unexamined life. Um, and so I can imagine Buddha, as each of us, uh, finally leaving the palace of comfort and security. And sort of standing at the doorway as he moves out of the palace and looking out into this world that he is totally unfamiliar with because he's been very protected, as in some sense we all are, as we, we're, we seek that protection, we seek that comfort, we seek that security, and sort of asking himself, what do I do now? Where do I go? Uh, how do I navigate this, this unknown world? And in some sense, when we embark upon this practice, we are in the same position. Uh, we, because this is, you might say, uh, you know, Robert Frost's poem, uh, The Road Not Taken, um, Two paths opened up in the woods, and I took the one less traveled. Um, 
And he says that has made all the difference. Well, there are lots of interpretations to that. But in some sense, we are embarking upon a road less traveled. Um, it's not a road that's familiar, uh, and we don't know what to expect. So we, we are faced with uh, unknown territory. And the Buddha did a lot of work in trying to figure out, not just intellectually, but intuitively, how to travel this road, this spiritual journey, which is much more an internal journey than it is an external one. That's what he was really about. And that's what we're all about. We're not, in effect, traveling literally to physical places, but we are traveling internally to discover the inner landscape, who we really are, what is our true home, uh, where do where is our where must our life go, and so most people uh, are reluctant to enter that that inner world, that inner landscape. It's 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 um, it's a place that in a way has no beginning and no end. Most of us are very used to a path that begins here and ends there. And often when we, when we talk about our spiritual journey um, and we talk about this way, this path, we think about starting in ignorance or starting in weakness and ending in strength starting in not knowing and ending in knowing. And if we enter the path in, a, in the woods, we usually think, well, okay, the meditation path begins here and it ends there. Um, but the inner path has no beginning and no end. It's almost more like when we talk about the Eightfold Path, which is the map that Buddha had developed in order to help us navigate this life, <clears throat> it almost is more appropriate to talk about the eightfold circle because in the inner landscape, where is, where is the beginning and where is the end? There, there really is no you can enter at any point on a circle and complete the the circumnavigation of that that inner landscape so we have no literal points of departure and arrival um, we talk about this our practice as a way dough <laughs> Uh, just as judo or aikido or cha uh, do, which is the way, way of tea, do is a way. And zen do, here we are practicing the way of zen. This way, this path that we're on, this spiritual journey, has no beginning and no end. 
because it is an internal journey. It is an internal path. And we speak of the, we speak of often of this path as the middle way, the middle way. And what does that mean? The middle way. Sometimes it's referred to as the mean between two extremes. That we don't want to have too much indulgence in sense pleasures, in, in uh, desire and material happiness. And on the other hand, there's the deprivation that is this sense that the spiritual life is um, austere, is ascetic, that we have to uh, get rid of all desires, get rid of all uh, passions, and, and live a kind of passionless life. And, pre- and presumably the middle way is halfway, a balance between the two extremes. That's one way of understanding, one way of understanding the middle way. Um, but there are other ways of understanding that too. I mean, in a, in a way, that understanding makes human life kind of um, boring. It doesn't have any real excitement or passion or drive. Um, it's like people just saying, whatever, uh, I'm cool with anything, nothing, <laughs> nothing bothers me, I'm not on either side of the spectrum. That's one way of understanding what it means to navigate the middle way. But another way of understanding it <coughs> and living it is what... Um, what we read, what we recited from Carlos Castaneda, which is that the middle way is the way of the heart. And sometimes we speak about getting to the heart of the matter. This is not the heart which is, you might say, the romantic heart, the Hallmark card heart. This is, I don't think this is what Castaneda or what we mean in Zen by the way of the heart. It's not just that, you know, mushy, uh, cushy um, uh, heart in that sense of being um, sentimental or nostalgic or soft. Not at all. Um, the heart in Buddhist practice is often called heart-mind. Heart-mind. It's not just this uh, sort of um, soft spot in us, although it includes that. But when we speak of being in the middle of things, it's, it can be conceived of as being at the heart of things. And so the middle way is not just a kind of compromise or half and half between two extremes. It's getting to the absolute center of the hurricane. (laughs) 
the center of the matter, the heart of the matter. And so when we are, say, for example, in the midst of a strong emotion, the middle way is not to find, to sort of clamp that down or calm that down. It's to actually lean into its very heart. So there is a very, um, a very strong sense in our practice that our way, our way of living, Zen is not just a, an intellectual exercise. It's a way of being. It's a way of being in the world. And it's a way of being which gets to the heart of things every single moment. So when we are navigating, when we are walking this way, this path, we are, we are circling in our kinhin. We are not getting anywhere. It's not a way which gets from here to there. It's not a way that gets from delusion to enlightenment. Because we are already there. So there's nowhere to get. And so we are, when we walk, we're not getting anywhere. When we practice, we're not getting anywhere. We're just coming again and again into where we already are. So I often say with Kinhin that every step is an arrival. Every step is an arrival. We're stepping down into the present moment each time. And so there is this circular movement which is characteristic of our life. Our kinhin is our life. We are walking in circles. And sometimes it feels like we're walking in circles, and there is a form of walking in circles, which is called samsara, in which we find ourselves doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's only samsara, that is the world of suffering, when we think we should be attaining something else. It's like, what is that gerbil who goes around and around and around in the wheel. This is often thought of as samsara. We just keep going and keep suffering and keep feeding our suffering. And as long as we think, as long as that gerbil thinks it's going to get somewhere, it's going to suffer. It's going to keep spinning that wheel. That's why, the, why samsara is suffering. But in our practice, we say samsara is nirvana. There is no getting anywhere. The thing that makes this circling nirvana is that we enjoy it. (laughs) We just say, whoa, I'm going round and round and isn't this fun? (laughs) You know, we just enjoy the process of walking of putting our little claws against those those bars. 
And as soon as we think there's something more, there's something outside of this, then we start to suffer. So this is what we mean, I think, and again, I'm just expressing my own views here, just always take that with (laughs) a grain of salt. Um, This is what we mean when we say samsara and nirvana are one. So I think each of us can examine our path. How did we how did we enter this? When did we enter this path? Um, what where is it taking us? What is what are our expectations? What are our aspirations? Uh, what are we looking for? And where are we looking for it? And how is our practice affecting our lives? When we offer incense, we say, may we, may we with all beings complete our spiritual journeys. What does that mean? To complete complete your spiritual journey? Is your journey ever really completed? And what would what would that mean? Where is enlightenment? Where is our freedom? Where is our peace of mind? Right here. Right now. I was remembering the other day, many, many years ago, when I went skiing, downhill skiing with my husband, and this was upstate New York, and it was zero degree day, and the slopes were perfect, and I was a beginner, but I had pretty much known how to navigate the down, the beginner slope. And once we got down to the bottom of the hill, there was a rope, a, uh, a tow bar, you know, that one that goes between your legs and carries you up. And there's a reason why they have a tow bar, because it's, it's not an easy path <laughs> to, to walk up. Uh, And so I was online waiting for my turn to get on the bar and I get on and I see that there's a little bump up the hill and I was very focused on that bump and wanting to make sure I I got over it and everybody was just getting going and getting over it and I approached the bump and I fell off, fell off the bar. It's kind of embarrassing. Uh, and I sort of got off and got back online, watching everybody, little kids, going up and just flying up there. Second time, this is true, second time, 
fell off again. And this was, this was getting to be quite annoying uh, and very discouraging because, first of all, I was freezing and failing every time and watching everybody else just fly up and watching me kind of rooting for me uh, from their place uh, on the bar. And third time, I fell off again. I was really getting extremely irritated uh, with myself, with the embarrassment, mainly with the embarrassment. My ego was really, really being affected by it. And my husband was laughing. He thought this was very amusing. <laughs> this is one of the reasons we got divorced. <laughs> Not the only one, but... Um, so I stood there, freezing, embarrassed, uh, ashamed, um, and very angry, not knowing what to do. And I decided that I was just going to walk up, because I was not going to subject myself to another. Because there is, you know, once you get into this kind of pattern of failure and you're just focused on success, you're bound to fail. And that's what I discovered. I, I, could, I got more and more rigid, more and more focused on that bump, and, ev- and the more I was focused on success, the greater my chances were, fa- were to fail. And so that was a profound lesson, uh, and I still remember it to this day, because I had to put my skis over my shoulder and my poles and in zero weather I had to climb Mount Everest and that's exactly how it felt. Every step was excruciating. I, I, by the time I got to the top where the lodge was, I mean I really felt as if I was going to die. That my, I mean I was hyperventilating, I was freezing. I thought I might have frostbite, but I was absolutely determined. I didn't really seem to have any choice. I just had to get to the top because there was no other way to go. And sometimes, and I use this example as a way of illustrating how our spiritual path can become, can turn against us, can, um, if we have this intense focus on achievement, we can really suffer. And, And it illustrated to me what my inner life, the pattern of my inner life was always to achieve, whether it was to get over that bump or whether it was to get to the top of the mountain. And that kind of paradigm, that kind of pattern, really stayed with me for most of my adult life. It was focus on this, what Castaneda calls ambition, 
If your path is characterized by ambition, you're going to curse your life, which is what happened when I started walking up that mountain. It was like, you know, I'm from the Bronx and I know how to curse <laughs> every step of the way. I was cursing. I was cursing my life. And so watching those children with that openness of heart, with that trust, with that I'm part of I'm just part of this flow of <laughs> of going up the mountain and down the mountain and up the mountain and down the mountain. Just this circular action, we're not getting anywhere is much more in the spirit of just enjoying the tow bar. Um, enjoying, actually even, even enjoying falling off. Um, and in just enjoying the process. And so the um, quote that I, not exactly a quote, but the... Um, paraphrase that I took from Alan Watts that's down on the eraser board. The path ends in the parsley. He's describing entering a Japanese temple complex. And as you enter the, the complex of the temple, there are these huge steps, stone steps and pillars, and it's very, very formal and imposing. And you walk up these steps and then into the temple, and so there might be gold Buddhas and uh, marble and beautiful carvings and... You walk through the temple and are just overwhelmed with the artistry and the formality and the beauty and the uh, the sort of seriousness of the temple. And then you walk out of the temple toward the back where the monks live. And it's a little more modest. There are cottages and little gardens and um, and then you continue to walk past those cottages and the monks quarters and then you come to a more wild place which is just going right into the woods and he says the path from these stone steps through the temple into the the lives of the monks goes right back into where we started, which is in the wild. And he says, the parsley, this wild patch of parsley, um, where the path, quote-unquote, ends. Of course, it never really ends, but the parsley is a kind of symbol for what is ordinary. You've got these amazing temple structures and then the path leads you. Where does it lead you? It leads you right to the parsley, which is right back here. And somehow we, we need to traverse that path. We're called to, to do that. But let's never forget that what is the way 
the way is your ordinary mind. The way is this. There's no other way. No other way. It's this. And so we keep coming back. No matter how grand our practice might be, no matter how many pieces of equipment we have, no matter how many rituals we go through, we always come back to the parsley.